Hey, good morning, everyone. My name's Ben. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Four Corners. So glad you're here. Third week of games, people play, and we are going to talk about taboo, hard conversations, or conversations that when you have them, you have to tread lightly so you don't say the wrong thing. We've all had them. We all have them. We all need to have more of them. We're going to discuss that. But first, I want to give you some great news. Um, we've been raising money for our Christmas offering, we've called it, and that lasts through January, and obviously we're into February now, but you guys are incredibly generous, and you've been funding through this Christmas offering three major initiatives, our work in India, uh, blessing some folks here in uh, Cincinnati, families that need help, and expanding our kids' space because we're largely out of room and have been out of room in preschool, and we're doing really well. So I have a slide, I just want to show you how the totals are rolling Gentlemen, it's a black slide right there. So we're at 94,000 adding those two things together. And I'd love for you to help me say thank you to everybody that's given. I suspect in the next two weeks, I'll be able to give you an exact go date when we're going to begin construction. We have a few program things going on in our building, and when we go into construction, it affects people flow and all that. So we're just trying to figure out the exact right day to go and begin, and I suspect that long before we enter our fall big kickoff of our next year of ministry. We started in the fall, so before our anniversary, we should be done with this project, and you're going to see a whole lot more room for students. You're going to see a whole lot more room for preschool, and you're actually going to see some more room for adult ministry stuff that's going to happen on Sunday morning while we're having service here. So I'm so grateful to you for your generosity and uh, for all the work that's going on. And Melissa mentioned to you as well that we had our marriage retreat this weekend. Went so, so well. So many people. And I made sure my wife was there taking notes. God knows she needs it. It's, uh, I'm kidding. She's not in the room. I won't say that second service. So don't y'all tell, all right? Hey, your message notes look like this. If you want to grab them out, um, go ahead and turn there. And while you're doing that, let me remind you that you can today sign up for a small group. The women's small groups in your catalog have come on strong this year. Many, many options there. Some 65 different women have already signed up for small groups. And our prayer for this year was 70. And uh, we know this, that everybody needs relationships. But we know that in a local church, it's just more enjoyable when you have a friend. And no better way to form a friendship than to get together in groups that are a little bit smaller and talk about truth that ultimately comes from God's word. Maybe pray a little bit together and share a little bit of life and build some relationships. So ladies, would you make sure that you, uh, you find a small group to be a part of? And men as well, there's some great options for you in there. And um, I think that, uh, that this semester of small groups for our church is going to be one of the greatest ever. One of the greatest ever. All right, so let's uh, turn in our message notes there. At the top of the page is our guiding verse, Leviticus chapter 19. It's not often that I preach from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is an Old Testament book. It's very important. In fact, when you understand Leviticus, it helps you understand a whole lot more about the New Testament when Jesus comes, uh, some of the rituals that they had to deal with, and some of the things that were going on. But when you read Leviticus, sometimes it can feel very um, ancient, because there's just a lot of old stuff in there and a lot of things that don't seem to apply anymore. But every once in a while, when you're reading Leviticus, you come across a nugget. You come across a nugget. And today, we're going to discuss one of these golden nuggets that's buried in the book of Leviticus. That even though it's in the Old Testament, it's still very applicable today. In fact, it's not, the concept is not just in the Old Testament. It's actually all through the Bible. 
But I saw it in fresh ways over the last few weeks as we were getting ready for this message series. And I wanted to take you there. And um, you're going defi- to find it at the end of our reading of this little segment of the book of Leviticus, a very familiar phrase that you would expect me to talk about in church all the time. In fact, Jesus quotes this passage, and it becomes one of the things that he's most well known for having said, all right? So here it is, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16 through 18. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I'm the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the one phrase that jumped out at me was not the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a phrase that I'm used to reading and talking about around here. Jesus one day when he was talking and and was alive on the earth, he was asked, what's the two most important commands of our holy scriptures? And Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is part and parcel of what we do. But in this passage, Jesus refers back to it, and it makes it very familiar to us. But in this passage specifically, there's another phrase that jumps out at me that I haven't really investigated to the level I've been investigating for the last couple of years. So let me give you some background before we break this passage apart. A couple of years ago, our church was going through uh, just a time of, of transition. We'd been in our building for a while, and we're asking, all right, now that we're here, we had been eight years as a mobile church set up tear down, set up, tear down, and that was good. You know, it was fine. We were so glad to get out of that. We kind of felt like the children of Israel getting out of Egypt. You know, on that last Sunday, we set up in the theater, and the next Sunday, we were here in this building. It was incredible, and we got in, and we started making this place feel like home, and a couple years into that, we started saying, all right, what's next? What's next for us? I got together with uh, our, our, our staff. I got together with some people we had hired from the outside, got together with a few of our board members and said, all right, what, what, what's next for us? And one of the things we talked about was, was defining a healthy culture for the next phase of our life. What is the environment in which we want to do church together? How do we want this thing to feel and look and smell and taste? What, what's the culture in which we're going to operate? And that's an important conversation. It's a conversation that Jill and I have had about our family. We didn't call it family culture, but we've said, you know, what what do we want to do with our kids? How do we want to raise them? What's the environment we want in this home? Because, you know, she came from a family that had a particular environment, and I came from a family that had a particular environment, and now we're developing this thing together with our own kids and our own sense of legacy and purpose, and what do we want to do? So what do we want it to be like? What do we want the culture of this family to be? Well, in that discussion about our church, one value kept coming up over and over and over again. And I talk about it a lot because we're still very much in the middle of trying to cement this value in the culture of this place. And I'm presenting it to you today through the lens of this passage in hopes that you'll grab hold of this value for your life. Because it's not a value that is just good for churches or for my family. It's a value that the Bible talks about a lot, and it's a value that if you'll embrace it, and it'll be difficult. I'm going to tell you right now, some of you, when we get into this, your palms will literally sweat, all right? 
But if you'll embrace this value, it will make the quality of your life better. If you're a follower of Jesus, it'll put you more in line with what the kind of life and community and culture God wants you to be a part of creating and experiencing. And when we talk about this, I'm going to be honest with you. You want it for you. You want this for you. You really do. But sometimes it's really hard to help other people experience it. And that phrase then that jumped out at me in this passage was a phrase that doesn't get talked out a, a lot, but it's right there about the middle of the segment of the passage we're looking at. And it goes like this. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly. Now that phrase, I don't know that I've ever heard it preached on before. So I thought we'd tackle it today a little bit. So let me ask you a question. Do you do that? Do you rebuke your neighbor frankly? For instance, do you go next door and say to your neighbor, I hate this carpet. Your decor is ugly. Your dog smells. Your children are not pretty. (laughs) Of course not. We don't do that sort of stuff. That's not what this is talking about at all, all right? So what does the Bible mean when it says rebuke your neighbor frankly? So today, we're going to talk about that phrase, rebuke your neighbor frankly. And I can't make you any promises on the quality of this message, but I promise you this. By the time we get done, you're going to have a robust understanding of that phrase. Not only why the Bible says it, but some steps to begin to apply it helpfully in your life. That word rebuke is a strong word. It's a strong word, and we're going to take some time to unpack it, give it context, because everything happens in a context. This is not a standalone principle that applies in every situation in the same way all the time, but it is one of those uber principles that if you'll grab hold of it, it'll change the tone and the tenor of your life. When our church staff and our church leadership started pressing into this value of candor, talking honestly, having different conversations, bringing clarity to what we mean and how we feel, there was a book that kind of rose up uh, out of the, uh, the mire of that conversation as a guiding beacon for us. Some of you that like to read, you may want to just write this book down. But Joseph Grenny wrote a book called Crucial Conversations. And in this book, he very much discusses, not from a biblical context, but it's very biblical because these these are Bible values. He talks about how hard it is to have conversations sometimes that we need to have. It's very difficult. Some of you right now are in a work environment, and there are some conversations that need to be happening in your work environment, but nobody wants to have them. And because nobody wants to have them, the dysfunction on your team at work is perpetuated. It's going on. It's continuing because nobody wants to have that conversation. This weekend in our marriage retreat, we talked about the power of having conversations that are healthy and forward-leaning. And sometimes it's very difficult. And depending on your family of origin, some of you are wired more where what we're going to talk about today is easier, and some of you are wired so that it's not. But here's the thing that we have to understand, our first blink. Believe it or not, there are moments that matter more than other moments. And I know that might not strike you as profound, but go with me for a minute. There are certain moments that have a disproportionate impact on your life or on your relationship or on the culture in which you operate. These moments happen in time. They're just a segment of your life, but the impact of them lingers well beyond days and sometimes even weeks and moments. 
These are moments often that are marked by important or crucial conversations. And the truth of the matter is, is that we have them all the time, and often we don't even realize we're in the middle of a crucial or an important conversation until it kind of slaps us in the face. You've had them. You're going to have them again. Some of you will have them this week. They're very vulnerable moments. For instance, maybe at your work, somebody reports to you, and you're supervising them, but you're kind of letting them get away with murder, and you're not holding them accountable, and somebody comes up to you and says, you know, that's your direct report. You need to have a conversation with them, because what I'm seeing here is having a negative impact on me. Now, they're never that nice about it. What they say is, is are you going to get that person under control? They're making my job harder. Do you work with anybody that makes your job harder? Yeah? Yeah? I, I have. Have you? So in this book, Crucial Conversations, Joseph Grenny says that these moments come up and they're important moments. And if we don't recognize how important they are, we will miss the power of them. But there's a way to tune in and to understand what's happening so that in these important moments that really are more important than a bunch of other moments in your life, you can grab hold of them benefit from them, and help not only yourself, but you can help the people around you. And they're called crucial conversations. And when they happen to you, when somebody were to come up and say that to you, here's the question. Do you, in that moment, dismiss it? Do you get defensive? Do you rile up? How do you respond? You've seen it in other environments in life. You're at a party, and maybe it's your girlfriend, boyfriend, your husband, or a wife, and they're talking a little too much. In fact, maybe they've had a little too much to drink, and they're embarrassing themselves by the level of conversation they're having. On the way home and the car ride, it's clear they think they were the life of the party. What do you say in a moment like that? Or you bring home the man of your dreams to meet your dad, and it's apparent that the man of your dreams is not the man of the dreams your father had for you. It's time for a crucial conversation. Or you're in a church group somewhere doing something and the dynamic in the group just isn't right. Somebody is grabbing hold of the attention, talking way too much, uh, uh, consuming all the time so that nobody else has a, a chance to share. What do you say? How do you engage it? All right? Or maybe... Maybe like uh, your mom is an incredibly needy person and over the holidays you heroically spent a lot of time with her and you, you really just gave it a lot of attention and you bit your tongue appropriately and, and you got through it. And on the way out the door, she says, oh, honey, thanks so much for coming. Let's see what we can do to get you back here next week and do this all over again. What do you say? These are moments in big and small ways that call for crucial conversations. And this is the kind of environment that the Bible speaks to when it says, rebuke your neighbor frankly. Again, we're going to unpack those words in a second, but let me make something clear. As soon as you start caring about something, that's our blank, you're going to need to have a few crucial conversations. Now, if you don't care, what I'm talking about doesn't matter. If you don't care, it doesn't matter. But if you care, crucial conversations are very important. Let me tell you how you know you're in the middle of one. When the stakes are high, it's a crucial conversation. Or when there's opposing opinions, it's a crucial conversation. And when there's strong emotion, when those three things are present, you're having a crucial conversation. In fact, I would suggest when two of the three are present, you're having crucial 
conversation. Some are more important than others, of course. There's a sliding scale and not everybody, not everything requires the same level of engagement. But very often in our day-to-day world, we are in an environment where an important conversation needs to be had. And the Bible is full of this stuff. The Bible is full of important and crucial conversations. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is the story of a man and a woman who sin. This messes things up. God comes down, the Bible says, and wants to talk to them. And what is that scenario in which God wants to talk to them? How, how does God find the couple that has sinned? The Bible describes that they're hiding from God. They don't want to talk to him. And the conversation needs to happen. The consequences here are big. It really is. The stakes are are very high. There's a very strong opposing opinion. God had said, I'd like to be God. The man and woman acted like they wanted to be God. They wanted to have the knowledge of God. And they assumed that they could, if they did what they wanted to do, kind of have the power of God. So there's strong opposing. And there's incredible emotion at the table. There's fear and shame and guilt and anger and blame shifting and All kinds of things going on. But God comes down and he initiates, he he has an ongoing conversation with them. He He hunts them down to have that conversation. It's almost as if God understands that the health of a community, that's our blank, the health of a community, that's a family, a church, a work culture, is a is a function of the lag time between identifying and discussing a problem. One of the ways you know if you're doing well as a family is how long does it take when a problem surfaces till we start to have healthy conversations about it? And some of you came from a family and you would say, honestly, we never had a healthy conversation about it. Some of you work in an environment where there are no real healthy conversations going on. How does it feel every morning or every afternoon to get up and go to a job where there's no important healthy conversations happening? It's demotivating. It's exhausting. If you're a manager, if you're a boss, you know the weight of this subject that I'm talking about. Some of you right now know that there are conversations that need to happen in your work environment, and you know you're the person that's supposed to lead them, and yet the very thought of it scares you to death. And yet you know the stakes are high. You know that when you step into that deep end of that pool, there are going to be strong opposing opinions, (laughs) and you know that emotions are likely to run the gamut. But again, the Bible's full of this stuff. And as followers of Jesus, let me make make this clear. This kind of thing that we're talking about is not just like good advice. Not just like, hey, try this out. In this community, this family that God is creating where we're called brothers and sisters. Remember, family is God's favorite metaphor for Christians. In this family that God's trying to create, having important conversations and having them well is so important to the quality of our life together. Genesis chapter 4, I won't go through the whole Bible, but let's park in Genesis for just a second again. There's an important conversation that happens. Cain is angry at his family member, his brother Abel, and uh, it's not going well. There's real jealousy that's developing there. So God comes down at some point and he talks to Cain and he says, Cain, why is your face downcast? Why are you angry? Genesis chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, there in your notes. And he invites Cain to have an important conversation with him. 
And the stakes are very high. If you know this story from your Bible, eventually where this thing's going to go is Cain is going to kill his brother Abel. Not able to grab hold of all of his emotion and respond correctly. God comes down in the middle of this ugly situation and initiates a very important conversation. Yeah, it could be said that the whole Bible is really one series of important conversations after important conversations. We wouldn't even have our New Testament the way we have it if the Gospels didn't record for us important conversations that Jesus had with person after person and after person. And that's not there for us just to know something. When you read these important conversations Jesus is having, it gives us a tangible expression of how important conversations like this are, and it gives us a tangible example of how we can have some of them. So in the first two we've referenced, God initiates them. Because the stakes are high and there's strong emotions and it could go a variety of different ways. There's opposing opinions. So God comes down and he initiates and it begs the question, why does God initiate conversations like this? And the simple answer is God always does everything from his character. And the Bible tells us the character of God is love. So the reason God initiates conversations like this is because he loves the people deeply. And the reason why you and I have to have conversations like this in our marriage is because if love is going to flourish, if we're going to love our neighbor as ourself, one of the ways we'll do it is we'll step in regularly into the deep end of the pool and have tough conversations. But nobody trains you for this. I mean, some of you come to the table of this conversation and you're more armed to do it well because your family of origin just did it better than the person you're sitting next to. And you didn't so much go through a training to do it. You just picked up a culture that was pretty healthy. But I'm learning the vast majority of us were not trained on this basic life skill of how to step into ugly, potentially ugly, sometimes really ugly, if not ugly, just emotionally distressing environments and have conversations that we need to have in healthy ways. And if you're working in a job environment again, and that's not going well, it doesn't matter how much you like your job, eventually you begin to loathe the amount of time and energy you have to put into a place like that. It could be said, by the way, that prayer, prayer is a place to have crucial conversations with God. It's a place to dig in and begin to talk things out with God where you can be brutally honest because you know that while he cares for you, he loves you deeply. And so you can afford to be totally candid and transparent with him and you can work things out with him in prayer because he loves you so much. So let's unpack that phrase just a little bit. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly. So rebuke. Rebuke, that word is, is awkward. You know that often the other person's not going to like it. It has a kind of a sternness to it. But it's really a pretty helpful word. It's just in a church context it picks up extra energy. The word rebuke just means I'm going to speak with a certain amount of frankness. And I'm going to apply a certain value on what I see that's going on. I'm going to be clear about the value I observe and have, the value I have as I observe what's going on around me. I'm going to be clear about what I observe going on around me. And I'm going to give you my sense of the value of this and how I feel about it. 
And typically it implies a certain amount of negativity. I don't like what I see and I want you to know that. Or I'm concerned about what I'm seeing and I want you to know that. Or I have a potential concern if this thing were to play out and I want you to know that. That's really all that the word means. There's all kinds of places in the Bible, Romans in the New Testament, 15, 14. I don't have it for you, but you can write it down. It says, admonish one another. Same idea. They kind of push each other in the right direction. Or Ephesians 4, 15, my favorite. Speak the truth in love. We as Christians have to understand that having crucial conversations honors God and moves us toward healthy relationships. That's our blank. Having crucial conversations honors God and moves us towards healthier relationships. One of the heroes of the faith for me of the last hundred or so years is a gentleman by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Germany as things were spiraling out of control and Hitler was rising to power and it was apparent things were going to go bad. And he started speaking out against the evils he saw in that movement. And it didn't go well for him. One day he gets together with a bunch of pastors and uh, political people and they decided, they got together and they began to plot the assassination of Adolf Hitler. They wanted to end it. Now I'm not suggesting that's a good move, but for him, it was a big deal. And he ends up in prison and ultimately he's killed. Ultimately he's killed. And that's a bit of his story, but his real legacy is his language and his clarity around this family that God is trying to develop in the world. And one of his most important works is called Life Together, which is a good phrase to describe how churches are supposed to operate, how families are supposed to operate. And honestly, if you're a manager, how well-functioning teams and business are supposed to operate. How do we do life together? And I have a quote for you there from his book. He says, reproof or rebuke, right? Or this kind of direct talk about a thing that raises concern in me. Reproof is unavoidable. In fact, nothing could be more cruel than that tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing could be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls another back from the path of sin. This would be, on an extreme example, it would be the parent who sees the child running out of the yard towards a busy street of traffic but says, I don't want to startle my son. I don't want to scare my daughter, so I'm not going to yell back, stop, quit running towards the road. I wouldn't want to offend them. Of course you would never do that because the stakes are high. And so the parent doesn't worry about startling the kid. They yell out, stop, because they can see where this thing's going to go. And Bonhoeffer's point here is is that in a Christian community, in your family, in a well-functioning work environment, there have to be moments where somebody stands up and says, hey, I don't know for sure, but I have a growing concern about. Now, you've been in meetings when that happens. And it's like, if you'll excuse the, uh, the phrase, it's almost like somebody, you know, drops a big turd in the punch bowl on the table. I said turd. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> you know that feeling when somebody has that conversation and it's like, oh my gosh, they went there, you know? You, you've seen that kind of environment happen. Everybody's head goes to the floor, right? Why? Because we know that intent, in, that, that tension that is inherent in that situation. So Granny, when he talks about this concept 
he talks about the big lie that every one of us have to face. Here it is. The big lie is this, that I have to choose in those moments between telling the truth or keeping a friend. I have to choose between telling the truth or keeping a friend. And we wrestle with this. You know, I'm a little concerned about your drinking these days. I don't want to have that conversation with a friend. I'm a little concerned about the attention you're giving that girl, that lady you're not married to. You know, I, I, we don't want to, we feel it, we'll think it, we'll tell it to our spouse when we're at home. I'm a little worried about, but we don't want to say it directly because we have this idea that if we talk with that kind of care, candor, we'll lose our friends. And the reason we feel that way is on occasion it happens, but not as often as we think it will. Not as often as we think it will. What we tend to forget is that in these moments, these crucial conversations, there's a lot riding on it. The culture in which you're going to do life, the quality of that relationship, the honoring of God as followers of Jesus. The question does not then become, do I talk about it or not? It's not that simple. It really is a bit more nuanced. It's, do I love you enough to talk this out with you? Do I love you enough to talk this out with you? Years ago, I had a close friend. We're still moderately close. I had a close friend, and um, his humor, very funny guy. Very funny guy. And I gravitate towards funny guys, and I'm still in junior high, and if it can be a little sarcastic or a little potty humor here and there, I think it's hilarious. It's horrible, I know. I should resign right now, but I do. I find that stuff funny, and if I trust somebody, there's a lot of grace in that, and you know, probably cross the line a bit, but he's very, very funny, and I hang around this guy, and from time to time, we'd just be at the dinner table or whatever with a bunch of other people, and he'd drop a zinger on somebody, and everybody would laugh, ah, you know, and it's a little biting, a little sarcastic, but all in good fun, and over time, a lot of that humor started turning towards me, and here's something I observed, it wasn't as funny anymore. <laughs> like the first couple times, it was funny, and then I was like, ouch. Ouch, that, that stung a Now, nothing was big. It was never, you didn't mean anything. It was just kind of flowing out of who he was and, you know, larger than life personality and a lot of fun. I remember going away from a particular uh, dinner episode, a bunch of buddies hanging around the table and late in the evening and we we're all slap happy and, and he drops a few of those zingers and I chuckled, but inside I was like, ow, ow. It was this sl- I felt this tiny sliver of kind of turning away. And so I went to bed that night, and next morning we're getting up, and we're kind of breaking up the group that uh, next morning and going our own ways. And I was in this moment of, do I tell him? But if I tell him, he's going to think I'm weak, or he's going to think I'm a baby, or and yet I care for this guy. And In the book, Crucial Conversations, he makes the point that the lag time between when you have these slivers of turning away these moments and when you actually address them as a function of the health of the relationship. So that morning passed. I didn't say anything. I just couldn't do it. I, I was worried about what he'd think about me. I didn't want to be that guy. And, but over the next few days, it kind of ate at me a little bit. So I called him, had that conversation. It was one of the most difficult things I did. And I can't even tell you why it was so hard. But there was a moment of vulnerability a moment of just transparency, and I was afraid, perhaps, that he would take it and kind of turn it and use it at the next time we were all together as a joke, but 
against all my fears, he heard what I had to say and offered a very gracious apology. And over the next several times we were together, there was just much less of that. And I made it very clear to him, I don't want it all to go away. It's just, I just don't know that I have the, you know, the thick skin perhaps that everybody else has. And it actually brought us closer together. Time and distance and, you know, a few decades kind of has pulled us apart in, in another direction. But, but I learned in that moment that there's great power going ahead and stepping into the deep end of the pool. And I learned another lesson. And here's our next blank, that you're either going to talk it out or you're going to act it out. You're going to talk it out or you're going to act it out. For those of you that are married, you know what this is about. You're frustrated. Something happened. You're a little ticked off. Something occurred and you don't like it. And it's your spouse's thing. They did that thing. And you'll either talk it out or act it out. You either come to the table and have a conversation. Hopefully it goes well. And you remember what we talked about last week, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. There's great ways to learn how to talk it out. Or you'll act it out and you'll withdraw or sarcasm will keep its way back in to the relationship or, you know, there'll be intimate distance, intimacy distance between you guys. Those of you that are parents, you've seen this. Sometimes things are going on in a kid's life and you just need to have a conversation about it, but you put it off and you can just see there's actions that indicate something's not quite right. And then in those moments, we have an opportunity to have crucial conversations. And for most of us, this is hard. Some of us, it's not. Like, you like rebuking. You like it too much. Your motto in life is rebuke till you puke. That's your motto. <laughs> but remember, the phrase says rebuke your neighbor. So it's not everybody. It's not the world around you. It's not commenting on everything that you see, although you're welcome to do that. This is a very particular context. Rebuke your neighbor. These are the people you're doing life with. And the whole purpose of this is to live under the umbrella of love your neighbor as yourself. Do you love someone enough to jump into the deep end of the pool and have conversations like this? And it's really, really crucial. And at times, especially in churches, when these kinds of issues come up and there's a meeting or there's a conversation, in a church context, it's very easy to rush to the side of niceness and believe that the Christian thing to do is just pretend like it doesn't exist and cover everything with, a, you know, the salve of grace. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. Not everything has to be addressed. And the Proverbs tells us that there's wisdom in overlooking an offense. And if you can genuinely overlook it, there's great wisdom in that. But does everybody in the room understand what I mean when I say that there are those offenses that happen and they're not a big deal. On a scale of one to 10, they're a one, but they get in your heart. And a few weeks later, there's another one. And it's not a 10, it's a two, but it's added to the one that wasn't dealt with. Over time, they accumulate. And you begin to look at that person or that environment with a different lens now because of accumulated hurt. And it's not that any one thing happened, but over time, in fact, I've seen people leave churches over the silliest things. And when you look at it, and I would maybe talk about it with my pastor friends, they'll say something like, they left over that? And I'll be like, yeah, they did. Can you believe it? But then when you back up, you realize it wasn't that one thing. It was the accumulated thing over and over, over time. 
And they never had the crucial conversation until it was almost too late and often was too late to preserve the relationship. I've observed this in families where somebody sits in my office and they'll use this phrase, I don't love you anymore. And in fact, I've never loved you. That's just the most hurtful thing in the world. And you know it's not true. There was love there. But what happened was, over time, over a decade, over seven, eight years, there were one and two level hurts, like very low level, little slivers of disconnect that happened in a person's heart, and they didn't deal with it. And it built up, and it built up, and it built up, and it actually turns your heart away from that person or away from that environment. That's why important, crucial conversations have to happen. Because when they don't, it's impossible to love your neighbor as yourself. It's difficult. And as I'm talking, I know that some of you are thinking about a conversation you need to have. So why is it so hard? Let's take a little break. What do you say, this conversation? Why don't you turn your eyes to the screen and watch a little video. Sam Grenny, the guy who wrote the book, Son, did a little experiment on how it is that people lie to one another and don't tell the truth enough. Pay attention. I think you'll like this. We all know adults stink at talking about tough things. But how about little kids? Here's my experiment. Feed kids wretched brownies, then see if they'll tell you the truth. Especially when they think it might hurt your feelings. First I made the brownies. Lots of chocolate, eggs and flour, but instead of sugar, I put in salt. Lots of salt. <laughs> There's no way they could like these better. Now I recruit kids of various ages for a taste test. I tell them I want to compare ordinary brownies to my special brownies. My dear grandmother's special recipe. My dear dead grandmother's special recipe. Then I give them a dollar for being such a big help. My parents always taught me that if you want someone to like you, give them money. Okay, here goes. First they ate the yummy sugar brownies. Next, they eat the salt bricks. Watch this girl. She can hardly keep from gagging. And now for the crucial moment. Will they tell me the truth and possibly offend me? I asked them to point to the brownies they like best. No surprise that some tried to spare my feelings. But watch. Even the one who gagged? And how about really little kids? But do you want to know what they really thought? Here, guys, I have leftovers. Does anybody want seconds? So somehow it happens at a young age. We learn that it's very difficult to have these conversations. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. Let's look at a couple passages that maybe will push us in the right direction. 
Proverbs 27, 6. On your notes, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. The idea here is that when friends love you, what they say may sting a bit. But we probably need to hear it, even if they're not right. The relationship requires an honest engagement of the concept or the idea. Because the relationship is often even more important than the idea. Mark chapter 10, verse 21. I like this. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Here's the background of this story. There's a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my brownies are are amazing. That's not what he said. What he said was, I've kept all the rules in life. I am all the laws. I am at the top. And the Bible says that Jesus looked at him, and there's that phrase, and he loved him, and he said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Jesus loved him enough to say to him, there's, I hear you, but actually your brownies aren't that great. And when Jesus was hanging around with Mary and Martha in John chapter 11, verse 5, the Bible tells us that he loved Mary and her sister Martha. But when Jesus was at the house and Mary is at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's upset about it because Mary isn't helping in the house, Jesus loves Martha enough and he says to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but Mary has chosen what is better and it's not going to be taken from her. In other words, Mary gets it. I'm sorry you're offended, but Mary's actually right. But these aren't the only conversations that Jesus had. When he was a little kid and he had run off from his parents, or so they thought, and they're heading back from Jerusalem to their hometown, they start asking, where is he? Where'd he go? They walk back to the center of activity, back at the temple, and there's little Jesus, young man Jesus, and he's talking with the church leaders And they say to him in exasperation, where have you been? And he looks at them and he very directly says to them, do you not know that I must be about my father's business? Like he, like this gives a certain kind of truth bomb in the middle of that. But I think one of my favorite places, and I didn't realize it until I got deeper into this study, that Jesus has some of his most important conversations is when he's hanging on the cross between two thieves. And one is saying, you don't, deserve to be here. And the other is saying, you're just like us. And all of a sudden, they're in the middle of a very important conversation where the stakes are high and there's lots of emotions. And Jesus is having this conversation and the words come out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says back, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Even to his last breath, he's having clarifying, important conversations. So let me ask you in your house, How quickly does someone say, when can we talk? There's the key phrase. Those are the important four words. When can we talk? Something comes up. You get a text you didn't like. So you respond in the moment like you should. You engage as you can. And then how quickly does it take someone to say, when can we talk? The speed between the realization of a problem and the engagement of the problem is an indicator of the health in your marriage, in your parenting? How long does it take for you to sit down? When we discuss concerns, here's the thing you may not understand. It becomes a trust accelerant. It becomes a trust accelerant. And when there's trust in families, in churches, in marriages, in companies, they function better and they start moving at what experts call the speed of trust. When there's high trust, incredible things can happen. 
In a church context, we see this all the time. People come in with their problems, their concerns, their challenges, and they're not even sure that God is good and that he loves them. And over time, perhaps, because of a warm smile, maybe a message, maybe the worship, maybe they were served, they begin to believe that God loves them and wants to be a part of their life. The phrase the Bible uses for this process is they begin to trust him. When they begin to trust him, their hearts open to his full work in their life. And the speed of change in their life is exponential. When trust is robust in a marriage relationship, all kinds of external threats can come against a marriage. But when trust is there, they can deal with it. But I've seen marriages shatter over silly things, not because of the silly thing that ultimately did it in, but over time, trust was eroded. When your company, when your family, when your church operates at the speed of trust, almost nothing can stand in your way. So we've been talking a lot about doing this, and I hope that God has been bringing to your mind a conversation or two you need to have. Let me give you two steps on how. The first conversation I think Christians should have when a crucial conversation needs to be had is the one between you and God, on your knees, privately before him. God, I think I need to have a crucial conversation. I want to talk it out with you. I want to talk with you about it. And you begin to rehearse with God the conversation you're going to have. The Bible calls that prayer. You talk to him. It's amazing how when you talk to God and you create that space for that conversation, it illuminates and makes healthier The next conversation. I want you to be aware of this. When I talk about having the conversation you need to have, rebuke your neighbor, people in your relationship, frankly, I'm not talking about going and talking to anybody else other than you and God. In church work a lot, we like to, you know, recruit a, a friend to help us. In a marriage, you'll talk to your friends about the things you'll be talking to your spouse about. So recruit or rebuke your neighbor frankly. So do it directly, not opaquely. Talk to God about it privately. He'll listen. That's our first step is how. Talk to God about it privately. Check your heart, check your motive, and then step into that. When you step into it, know this, you're not alone. You're not alone. And as a practical step, if there is a list of people you need to engage or a list of ideas you need to engage, don't start with the big one. Go where there's more trust. And where there's more trust, it's easier. But what you'll find is in those important relationships over time, if you'll do this, it will actually build trust. And will they all go well? No. Will everybody respond rightly? No, they won't. But you will be carrying very short accounts. And you'll be creating an environment where trust and intimacy and love can flourish. And those little slivers that get stuck in our hearts, those will begin to get pulled out. And that's why God values conversations where you bring candor and transparency. So let me ask you, do you need to have any of these? At work, with your spouse, in your small group, in a church conference? context. If you do, you won't be alone. Your heavenly father will go with you because he cares more about the quality of your relationships than you do. And he loves those people that you and I need to talk with and those that need to talk to us. It goes both ways. 
He loves everybody more than we do. So that's why he gave us this concept of rebuking quickly and frankly and directly and telling the truth in love. Don't make the mistake, the Christian normal mistake, that it's nicer and kinder to not tell the truth. No, the loving thing to do is to speak the truth in love. And watch your relationships very quickly begin to flourish and grow. So let's take out our connect cards and let's take a few steps in this direction. So today I've been talking about crucial conversations and it could be that the most important one you need to have is the one between you and your heavenly father because you're not in a relationship with him. That's true for you. I wanna give you a chance right now to have an important conversation where you look up to God and say, God, today I want you to be my Savior and Lord. I'm gonna trust what Jesus has done on the cross for the covering of my sin. I'm gonna agree with what the Bible says that I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. And I'm gonna trust Jesus to connect me to my heavenly Father. I can't do it alone. I can't bring anything to the table. I can only receive what you freely give. If you'd like to do that, if you'd like to begin a relationship with Jesus, I'd ask you to take your pen and check next step A. Today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. And then at the end of our service, you'll just put that card in the offering bucket. We'll communicate with you this week. I can put a lot of to-dos on you, nothing like that. But in just a second or two, we're gonna pray together. I'm gonna give you a chance to say to God in your own words or use mine, God, I want you to lead my life. I want a relationship with you. The truth is, I'm not following you. I need to. Or next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. What you're going to find if you get baptized in this place is a family who loves you and wants to celebrate what good things are going on in your life. A couple weeks ago, a very brave young lady who's been a part of our church for years, been following Jesus, said, I feel stirred. I need to be baptized. She says, I'm a little nervous. People think I'm just now becoming a Christian. I said, don't worry about that. She's like, I don't want to worry about that. Good, good for you. Don't worry about that. You do the thing that God's calling you to. And when she did, she was met with incredible encouragement from this community. So way to go. So perhaps you need to get baptized. Or next step C, you sign up for your small group. That's how you do it. You just take the number from the catalog and transfer it right to your Connect card. In one step, you can both sign up or you get the email that'll give you a chance to ask all the questions about that group. But you begin by putting the number on the Connect card. Next step D says, I need to initiate a conversation. A when can we talk kind of conversation. So if you check this, we'll pray with you about that. And we'll ask God to make you very aware that you are not alone in those conversations. God will help you because he really cares about the quality of your relationships. He really cares about that. In fact, it's right near the top of his list. Or next step E, we're sending our kids to camp. So this one says, hey, I'll help send our kids to camp. At the end of our service, Melissa's gonna tell you one way to do that. But bottom line, we're asking you to pray and over the next few weeks, maybe give a little extra or go to the kids camp auction tell you all those details, but this just says, hey, my heart's already leaning. I'll help send some kids to camp that perhaps would change their life. And if you check this, we'll send you the emails about it and you'll be in the know. All right. 
Let's pray about these things right now. Father, I want to thank you that you loved me enough to tell me that I was a sinner and that without you, my eternal destiny was not looking good. I want to thank you for the level of candor you've brought to me personally and how it helped me, how it brought clarity to me, and ultimately how it softened my heart towards you. God, I pray that in this place, this community that you're establishing called Four Corners, we would be people who step deeply into the reality that you care about the quality of relationships. We wouldn't believe the lies of our enemy that say, you know, it's either friendship or truth. But instead, God, we'd step in where we need to step in and we would rebuke our neighbors, frankly, as we need to have those kinds of conversations. I pray, Lord, that when people do that for us, that we're open and humble and receptive and we listen quickly and we speak slowly and we're slow to wrath. But I pray, God, you'd give us boldness and we would not be afraid. That we'd believe that perfect love casts out fear. I pray for marriages in this room, God, that need to have conversations. And there are secrets there's unresolved hurt, there's resentment, there's bitterness. I pray, God, that those slivers that have been planted in hearts in the marriages of this room would begin to get plucked out this week as conversations that are long past due begin to happen. God, I pray that in the mess that often happens with crucial conversations, that your grace and your presence and your power would be made known to us. God, I lift up those that are declaring Jesus. Wash away my sins. Cover me by your shed blood. I want you to be the leader and the Lord of my life. I need you. Father, I pray that our church, the quality of our love for one another would become such a beacon of light in this community that while we may not do everything greatly, we would greatly love. I pray this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen. Would you go ahead and stand up? We're going to worship together. You unravel.